and welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have another awesome guest to introduce to you now. Shawnee Van Lanningham is a former professional cross-country mountain bike racer and former pro triathlete. She is the most decorated athlete in the history of the United States Mountain Bike Championship Series, formerly known as NORBA, winning 15 races and three overall championship series. She was a seven-time U.S. National Mountain Bike Team member before switching to triathlon, winning the World Xterra Championship in 2010 with many other wins all over the world. Before cycling, she also played basketball and handball internationally. She has a history of doing charity work in Nepal and traveled there to help Nepali girls with their mountain bike skills, captured in the beautiful 2018 documentary, Moksha. We could talk to Shawnee about motorcycles, backflips, starting a coffee bean company in Hawaii, more basketball, fighting fires, pickleball, cornhole, real estate, shooting guns, who knows what else. Shawnee, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So, okay, let's go back to that intro. What did I miss? Um, I must have missed something. Have you done space travel that we didn't talk about, bullfighting experiences we didn't talk about? You've done... (laughs) pretty much everything what what did i miss <laughs> uh well my current passion is pickleball we'll have to talk about that later i love pickleball <laughs> pickleball so much really? fun oh, awesome. so fun that's great well there's a lot of pictures of you online doing all kinds of different things you know doing research on you and finding articles about your past and and you know most of them you're on a bike but you're also running or you know just doing a whole lot of different things but one thing that all of those pictures have in common is you have a giant smile on your face <laughs> whether you're going <laughs> full gas on a bike or whether you're doing backflips or shooting a gun you're always smiling and always happy <laughs> <laughs> so cool well you know i've i've perfected the art of making my grimace look like a smile. So even if I'm not smiling, people think I am. It looks like a smile for sure. (laughs) Uh, So I start out asking all of my cyclist guests the same question. And that question is what makes a bicycle so special? You know, I think for me growing up, it was freedom. Um, You know, being able to, to leave the house and explore and uh, really just it, it probably mostly was the freedom of being on two wheels and and getting away and kind of being independent. Mm. So you could say you fell in love with cycling from a very young age? For sure. I had a pink Huffy. It was like the first mountain bike for girls. That's awesome. That's great. <laughs> um, wow. So was that, was that uh, I mean, a Huffy would be kind of like a department store mountain bike. Is that correct? Oh, yeah. It was from uh, probably Kmart or whoever sold Huffies back then, we didn't have a lot of money. So I was just happy to get a bike. That's awesome. And that was your freedom to kind of explore the world. Right. Now you yeah, f- found some, you know, woods nearby the house. I grew up in the suburbs, uh, Dallas, Fort Worth area. And, uh, you know, there would be little pockets of trees here and there. So we'd go in there and cut little trails and, and, uh, we, you know, we pretended we were in the mountains or in the country, but we were really <laughs> right in the middle of the city. That's awesome. Now, with you, your first love wasn't necessarily the bike, although that was your ticket to freedom. Your first love was basketball. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, I love basketball. I played in in high school and then played in college for four years. And I really wanted to play professionally. But back then, we didn't have a women's professional league in the U.S. Mm-hmm. I played a little bit in Brazil and um, had the opportunity to to move there and play after college oh, wow. in their professional league. But I I chose not to do that. I think I wasn't ready to to leave the country, nor was I ready to commit to more uh, discipline. Like, I think I was just ready for a break after college. Hmm. So I moved to Hawaii instead. Gotcha. Uh, what part of Brazil did you, were you kind of headquartered out of? I've lived in the southern part of Brazil before. It's gorgeous. Oh, really? Yeah, I love Brazil. Um, we traveled around, so we were between Rio and Sao Paulo, so hitting a lot of different small towns um, and just playing. the. I was on like a U.S. touring team, and we played their professional teams, so we played in several different venues wow. and towns all around between those two major venues. That's super cool. How did you find the sport of handball? That's kind of a more obscure one. 
Yeah, you know, I think I found that because they recruited at that time basketball players because it is kind of a, a mix of basketball and, and soccer. Um, and I was at the Olympic Training Center playing basketball, just pickup games, and the coach was there, and we struck up a conversation, and he invited me to come out for a tryout. So I ended up playing some handball with the national team. So that was a lot of fun. It was brand new sport for me. So I, oh. I, I learned quite a bit. It was, it was awesome. Super hmm. active, it very seems, physical sport. It seems like it. Yeah. It seems really fast and physical. Mm-hmm. Uh. Yeah. Super popular in other countries, not so much in the U S but very popular in Europe. I found yeah. wow. I, I would see it often after, you know, I became a cyclist and started racing the world cups over in Europe. I would see handball quite a bit. Wow. Interesting. So you moved to Hawaii. Is that the first time that you started to go back to a bike and um, discover that you were pretty good at it? Yeah, I became a bike tour guide just as a, you know, as a job. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> and uh, it, was a, it was a gravity tour, actually. I'm sure a lot of people have heard of it. So we would go up to the top of Haleakala Crater on Maui and, uh, and basically coast down. It was, uh, I think it was 43 miles downhill with only 400 yards of pedaling. Wow. Something like that. <laughs> so <laughs> wow. we were on big cruiser bikes with drum brakes. It was a lot of fun. It was a scenic tour, but I think I got in cycling shape because I didn't have a car. So I had my own bike to ride back and forth from Kihei, where I lived on the south side of Maui, to Kahului, where my uh, company was located. So I was riding back and forth and and got in shape that way. And then uh, talk, talking to the guys at work, they were into mountain biking. That was kind of the heyday of mountain biking. So they turned me onto that. And one thing led to another. I ended up in Colorado and doing some local races and decided that was something I wanted to pursue. Wow. Yeah. The, the ride you're describing, um, I've done that ride before. It's not, it's not short. It's, that's a pretty far ride from one end of the Island to the other. So that you would have gotten in pretty good shape. Yeah, it is. Especially when the trade winds kick in every afternoon and you're going into it. It's, uh, it's a good power workout. Wow. I know there was a lot of mountain biking in Hawaii, but I would think that it was much more of a hotbed in Colorado. Is that correct? For sure. I, that's why I ended up in the Durango area. Um, my parents had a little house in Pagosa Springs, which is not far from Durango, the Southwest part of Colorado. And, uh, it was a, a kind of a Mecca at that time for mountain biking still is, but at that time, a lot of the top riders were living in Durango. Yeah, that's right. So I figured if, if I was going to pursue it, that'd be a good place to, to, to see what I had, you know, in comparison. So mm. I really kind of dove into it later in life. I guess I was in my late twenties when I started racing. Oh, wow. So I felt like I, I needed to get with it if I was going to pursue it, Wow. you know, on a professional level. Yeah. I mean, most people are getting into it way younger, but the cool thing about endurance sport is that unlike a sport like basketball, where you're peaking out at such a young age, maybe in your twenties with endurance sport, it's really just so much about the mileage and just, you know, getting those rides in and year over year over year and different training cycles. And, and you don't really see the same dropout in athletes as young. So that, I mean, that must've been beneficial for you. Yeah, that's true. You know, you can really look at it in a positive way because I have seen kids that start really early it really in any sport, not just cycling. And that's all they do. And it, and I don't really know that that's the best thing for our kids these days. Mm. You know, when, when you and I were growing up, we played all different sports. And, and I think for one, you find sports that you may not have found had you just done one thing your whole, you know, childhood. Sure. And two, it, it develops, um, all of your, your motor skills and you're not doing these repetitive motions, which I think can lead to injury prematurely for youngsters. Um, I, I'm, I'm not a big fan of, of kids just playing one sport year round. Hmm. I actually agree with that. And I, I think you're right. I think there is some research to back that up that says if you're you know, committing to one sport so early in life, you will have more injuries and all those things you described. So yeah, I think that's mm-hmm. super important. So you started racing. I want to say it was 99. Is that right? That's right. That was my first pro year. Uh, 99, I signed with KHS. Do you mm. remember that? Company? I do. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're still around. You don't hear about them a whole lot, but at that time they had a national team and they gave me an opportunity. 
um, as a, a rookie pro. I'm so grateful for that. I, I didn't sign for any salary. It was all bonuses, wow. which was good. You know, it was really a lot of incentive to, to get to the next race. I had to do well enough to make enough money to, uh, wow. <laughs> to the next, the next big national. That's some pretty important so, yeah, motivation. Yes. Wow. That's crazy. So they were paying you for results. So again, that's really motivated for you, motivating for you to perform well. That was kind of about the time in my life that I was getting very interested in cycling. Now, back then, obviously the racing is a lot different now, but back then, all I remember was there was mountain biking, cross country and mountain biking downhill. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. And then I think it wasn't long after that, that short tracks uh, races yep. started, which the cross country athletes would do that on the, on the, the second day. Yep. And then also dual slalom started. So then we all had two, two race formats. We, the cross country athletes would do the cross country the first day, the short track, and then the downhillers would do, I believe the downhill and then the dual slalom. Hmm. If I remember, I think you're right. Yeah, I think you're right. Now those downhill trails, I mean, some of those are not even safe to walk down, let alone (laughs) ride a bicycle down. What was the, what was the racing scene like then? What was it like for you? You know, that was definitely the heyday of mountain biking, the late nineties and early two thousands. I mean, we had, you would go to, it was like a circus. I mean, you know, it was like a traveling circus. We had all these huge trucks, all these team trucks. We'd pull into the venue, our team staff and mechanics would set everything up. And, um, and then on the race weekend, everyone would come in all the, the age group athletes and, you know, the people that just wanted to check out the scene. And I remember walking into those and you were just shoulder to shoulder with people getting to your team truck. It was awesome. Wow. Yeah. I remember those, they, they would do them in park city. Um, and I would go every year and it was, it was just a huge party and tons of people, tons of fans, tons of other people racing, lots of demos. And I still have, I don't know, like my, my cycle box full of all my tools has stickers from way back then that they would give away. And yeah, it was, <laughs> yeah. it was very different and, and you're right. It was kind of the heyday. Um, when, when did you start to experience the most success? Uh, personally, you know, like you said, I, I peaked in my thirties. So I would say mid thirties is when I was really on top of my game. Mm. Um, I won, I believe my first national championship in 2004, I believe. I think that's right. Mm. And then I accumulated seven. No, that's not right. Five national championships, um, one each year, but in different, uh, different events. A, a few were in cross country. One was the marathon. You remember the marathon race? I don't. Like no, no, I race. don't remember that. Wow. Super long. Yeah. The one I, I actually won was in Breckenridge. It was a 50 mile race all above 9,000 feet. It was Whoa, crazy. That's crazy. Wow. And it's, it is like a, a cross country format where you're going, you know, equal parts up and down. Correct. Wow. Yeah. That, that course in particular was two 25 mile laps. <laughs> It's brutal. So, yeah, it was real tempting to pull out after that first one. <laughs> uh, yeah, I would look at that rest area and just be like, uh, it's kind of tempting. Um, yeah. Was part of your success due to the fact that you got onto a different team? I, you transferred over to the Sobe team, which I'll, I'll never forget that commercial that you were in. <laughs> I remember that coming out. Um, yeah, it was a lot of fun. That It looked With like a lot of fun. And Biker Sherlock. We had a good time. They flew us all out to Universal Studios to do that commercial. And, uh, you know, we it was like the full – I really got a feel for what it was like to be like a, an actor or an actress. Wow. It's probably not something I would enjoy on a daily basis. <laughs> it was like the same take over and over for a 30-second commercial. You wow. Know? Yeah, wow. <laughs> but what a great experience. Yeah, Fun. I was so grateful. <laughs> That's awesome. So you race for Sobe for a few years and then you get placed on the Luna team, the Luna chicks team. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. That team was special. Yes, no doubt. What a great company. That's uh Luna is the women's product line for, for cliff bar. Cliff bar is the parent company. And, uh, it's such a great company to work with. They, this, their, 
the the uh, feel, the corporate feel. I mean, it's like a family. They treat everyone well. Um, they treated us really well. And at that time, um, part of their mission was to give women the same opportunity in cycling as the men were having at that time. And uh, and they did that. They paid us fairly and gave us the opportunity to to race all over the world, not wow. just domestically. Wow. We just interviewed Peter Stetna, who is also a Cliff Bar athlete. And I was looking at this custom helmet that they made for him this year, and it is gorgeous. It's such a cool custom helmet. And he said the same thing about Cliff as a company. He said there were people first. They took care of their people. He, he loves working with them. So I think that's really interesting. Talk about racing and training with some of your teammates. I mean, again, the, name, the names that you see on those rosters were top-notch, including yourself. Yes. Uh, most people probably remember Allison Dunlap. She won the world championship. What year was that? Like around 2001? I yeah, believe. that sounds about right. That was in Vail that year. Mm. Um, and she was amazing. I mean, what a great mentor she was. She, uh, she had quite a few years at a very high level before I ever started racing. So I learned quite a bit from her. She was very friendly. Um, you know, very helpful. There was not the feeling of competition. I mean, although on race day, of course, we went as hard as we could, but off the race course, all of us were very good friends. And and I really appreciated that about all my teammates. You know, I think Luna did a good job choosing the right personnel so that we all did get along and we really just made each other better. Mm. So we talked to Peter Setna about the role of your teammates in a road race. How does that change in a mountain bike race? Obviously you're not going the same speeds. And so, you, you know, drafting is a lot less of a thing. How, how would you use your, your teammates or how would they help you during a mountain bike race that you would do? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, like you said, it doesn't come into play as much in a cross country race where it did really come into play was the short track format. And we usually went into that with a plan where one of us would attack. It was me, uh, Allison Dunlap, and Katerina. I don't know if you remember her. At the time, she was going by Nash, N-A-S-H. Mm. And uh, we we usually went into that race with a plan where one person would attack, everyone else would sit, let someone else chase, kind of like the road mm. um, strategy. Interesting. So it definitely came into play with short track cross country, not as much. Although if you were riding with a pack and one of your teammates went off the front, you definitely wouldn't be the one to chase. So it did happen on occasion. It's just not as prevalent as it is in road racing. Yeah, I see. Now for the listener, if you can imagine a cross country mountain bike race, you're, you're usually at the base of a ski resort or something. They fire the gun. You guys start going. You usually start by climbing and then most of us as fans don't get to see you again for another 30 or 40 minutes, depending on how long the lap is. And that was a (laughs) a typical long form type of cross country race. And then like you said, early in the two thousands, they introduced short track. And if you're familiar at all with road cycling, that would be, I guess, a comparison to the criterium in road cycling, where you're doing a tight circuit. It's great for the fans because we get to see the entire race or you know, you're doing laps every few minutes versus every 30, 40 minutes. So it really was quite a fun format to watch for the fans. Was that your favorite to race? No, actually. <laughs> but my favorite format was the old school cross country where we did the one big epic lap, like at Big Bear or Mammoth. Some of those races where you climbed, you know, a long climb up the mountain and then you get this long 20 minute downhill just hanging on, you know riding on the edge, the, uh, two wheel drift. Usually it was super dry there. That was oh. my favorite format. And, but like you said, it's not great for the fans, but I think the riders really enjoyed it because you, you got to do the the most fun trails usually. And oh. some of these, you know, years later when they started this shorter format of like four laps of five miles, sometimes they weren't the best trails in the area that it was just the most it's what worked the best for TV at that time when they were showing our races on the outdoor life network. Remember That's right. that I forgot about that. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Wow. Yeah. Huh. yeah. But it was much better for the fans and for TV, but I wouldn't say it was my favorite format. 
Gotcha. I like the big epic loop. Gotcha. And you mentioned Big Bear. What was um, what was your favorite course if you had to go back and do one? For the old Norba races, I would say Big Bear and Mammoth were my favorites because I preferred altitude because I was living in Durango. So most of my training was done at altitude. So I really liked the long climbs where you're just right on the edge where you, you know, you're right at the red line where you're seeing a little spots, but you're not <laughs> <laughs> going over that amount. You know? Yep, I know exactly and what you're talking about. <laughs> cresting the hill and knowing if you can hold it together on this 20 minute downhill, you're going to win the race. (laughs) Wow. Were you better at climbing or descending? You know, I I think over time I became a a pretty good climber. Um, So I would say at the end of my career, I would say I was as equally a climber as well as a descender. I, I wouldn't really say I was better at either one. I think I was pretty even, Mm. but I did have to develop the climbing skills. I wasn't a great climber in the beginning. Mm. And again, for the listener, these cross country races go equal parts up and down. And so the bike that you have is designed to do both. And as a cross country racer, you need to have all of those skill sets, plus the fitness to be able to do these climbs, which are, you know, loose, they're extremely steep. They could be rocky. They could be wet and slimy and all kinds of different terrain. And so it really is a very unique skill set that you have to have to be good at doing a cross country mountain bike race. Definitely. If you're not a good climber, you get stuck behind people that may not descend as well. So then you, you use even more energy. So it's really important to have that, that whole gamut of skill set, as you said. Wow. So what was your most special moment, would you say, during your mountain bike career? I would say the most special moment, um, the very first Norba national race that I won stands out to me because it was in Durango. It was up at the ski area and I was living in Durango. So all of my friends were there and my parents were there to watch. And that was my first big win like, you know, big national win. Hmm. And, uh, I remember, do you remember Allison Sidor? She was the top Canadian racer for years. Yeah. Yeah. Um, very talented. And I remember she was in second and I thought if I can just, (laughs) if I can just hang on on this last climb, I'm going to, I'm going to win this race, my first big national. And she was second place. So for me, that was such an accomplishment because I respected her so much. Wow. And I was able to hold her off. And yeah, that really stands out. That's amazing. Did you pass her on the, that final climb or was it on the descent that you got her? You know, that was two big laps and I took the lead on the first lap. So I rode the second lap alone, but I was getting time splits from my team manager. Huh. So it was, you know, I was suffering, no doubt. <laughs> Try to keep that gap. Wow. Well, speaking of suffering, at some point, you decided to add even more suffering to your career. And I, some cyclists are aware of this. Um, a lot aren't, but there's a, a website um, called the Velominati, and they have a set of rules. And it's like a hundred different rules about cycling. And mostly they're just like kind of funny and stupid. And it's all about like lining up the label on your tire to match where your valve is and making sure your tan lines are properly kept and you're always shaving your legs and your bike is nice and clean all the time. <laughs> and one of the rules, I can't remember which one, says that a bike ride should never come after a swim or be followed by a run. (laughs) And you decided to do both and start doing triathlon. Why did you make that transition? I took a a triathlon. No, I'm sorry. I took a swimming class in college and I thought one day I want to do a triathlon. And then I just kind of put that in the back of my mind. But I really loved running in high school. I loved the mile. That was my race. That back then we did the mile. I think now they do the 1500 or something. Um, mm. <laughs> but I love running. So when I heard about this Xterra uh, race series, it's mountain biking and trail running. And I thought, wow, you know, that'd be kind of cool to do, you know, a bike and a run. And I think I can swim a mile. So <laughs> I went to the pool and started practicing swimming. I got up to three quarters of a mile. And I tried the Xterra World Championship was my first race. 
And at that time, Xterra was trying to get mountain bikers involved in the sport to grow their sport. And so they invited me to come and, you know, gave me a free entry and, uh, and I, I decided to enter. So it was at the end of 2005 or yeah, I think it was 2005, the end of my national mountain bike season. And, uh, I went into that world championship and I, I just decided if I can get through the swim, I can do the, the bike for sure. And then I can run six miles. I can do that. So I put my bike on that, the rack and I'm thinking, okay, there's, you know, 50 bikes. I'm on the third rack halfway down. I got to remember where my bike is. Well, I came out of the water and my bike was the last one on the rack. Wow. Because <laughs> I was so slow in the swim. Wow. Last one on the pro rack. So I didn't have any problem finding the, finding my bike. So that, that was always a. That's good strategy. Yeah. That's just good strategy. Wow. But after that race, I was hooked. I, you know, I came out of the water last. I think I got up to seventh place on the on the bike and then lost a few spots in the run. So I went away thinking if I train for this, I might, I might be able to hang mm. with the top people. How was your swimming training after that? I mean, pretty intense in the pool where you out in open water, like you would be during these events. A little of each. I, I bought a place in Hawaii. So I started going back and forth so I could train year round. And uh, so I did a lot of ocean swimming there. And then when I was in Durango, I would do, a lot of master's swim classes so I could work on my speed inside and then a lot of open water. Mm. I really enjoyed open water. In fact, I still enjoy that. I'm not really into lap swimming anymore since I don't have to do it. Yeah, (laughs) I wouldn't be. (laughs) Um, I've trained for one triathlon in my life and I did not find a passion for it like you did. And so that was my one and done. And for the (laughs) listener, if you're, if you're swimming in a pool, you really don't realize how nice it is to have that nice little blue line in really clear water. You can track yourself really easily. You know, you're probably not going to drown in four feet of water. When you go open water, you add so many different elements. You're in deep water. There could be tons of waves and you don't have that nice little blue line underneath you are the flags that you can see to track your distance. And so you have to navigate and, and kind of spot something on the shore and keep that in sight. It's totally different. It is. And then when you, you get into a race, you've got all these arms flying and people kicking you and it, it can be a little bit claustrophobic. I mean, I, I struggled a little bit with that. I would have to stay on the outside of the pack. I, I didn't like being right in the middle of the madness. I Definitely agree. Very claustrophobic. Uh. Yeah, I would joke about being uh, a professional athlete being caught doing the backstroke because I would <laughs> I would panic, especially if I was in a wetsuit. That was a real problem for me because it feels constricting on your chest, and yes. you start breathing heavy, and then you get hot yep. in the wetsuit. And I would I would panic, and I would have to unzip it. And that's bad because then you can't get it zipped back up and then that slows you down. So it was this whole, you know, downward spiral. I would have to really get in my head and, you know, coach myself through some of those panic moments. Wow. Yeah. I, I don't can, miss that at all. <laughs> I could totally relate to that. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, what? Okay. So in 2010, you win the, the world championship for Xterra. What was that like? That was amazing. You know, I was 41 and I think, I think people think you're too old when you're, when you're past 40 as a professional athlete. So I, I I really hoped that that encouraged other people, like just because you're 40 or 50 doesn't mean you can't be fit and competitive and whatever you're doing. Um, You know, 40 is like the new 30, right? I mean, we keep pushing the level, pushing the bar of what we can do at our age. And, um, that, that was, that was an amazing day. I I remember coming down the last stretch on the beach and looking behind me just to check, you know, double check (laughs) to see if anybody was near. And I came off the beach and somebody handed me the American flag and I just, held it over my head and ran with it. And the helicopter shot for the TV show was overhead and it's me running with the American flag. And it just, it still gives me chills. It was wow. such an amazing day. Just all the, the work and the, the sponsors, the support, just everything came together. That's on so that cool. Day. 
Wow. So cool. Is that what you're the most proud of when your triathlon career? I would say, yes. I mean, that was my, that's, that's our Olympics, you know, cause it's not yet in the Olympics. I believe it will be one day, but that's the pinnacle. Yeah, no, I agree. That's, so yes, so that, cool. that stands out for sure. Wow. So when did you decide to hang it up professionally and retire? And I'm going to preface that by, by saying, I don't, I don't know if you understand the definition of retirement. <laughs> seems like you're always going and doing all kinds of crazy stuff all over the place. But at some point you decided to retire from mountain biking and triathlon. What made you make that decision? Well, there are a couple of things. I was 45 when I retired and the year after I won the world championship in 2011, I was still going really strong. I was winning quite a bit. I felt that I was still in my, at my peak and I was really lining myself up to, to, you know, defend my title. I really thought that I, I might be able to win another one and I blew my knee out. So that, that was, super disappointing. I ended up having a ACL cadaver, uh, ACL replacement. And mm. that took, took me quite a while to get back from. And, and I was really never quite the same, you know, I never quite got that speed back and the strength back. It just, I just wasn't quite the same. So that was, that was disappointing, but it also taught me a lot. You know, it teaches you to be thankful for, for what you were able to accomplish. I mean, there's so many people that, that don't even, they don't get to do the things they want to do. And just to be able to win the world championship the year before, I, I just really had to turn my head around and just be grateful for that. And, and uh, yeah, so that was one of the reasons I retired. I, I wasn't quite where I was before my injury. And then you know, I had been doing it for seven years as a professional and, and I think I was ready for a change. I've learned about myself that I, I really have a need for novelty. (laughs) (laughs) So after I do something for a while, if you start to lose passion for what you're doing, I think it's good to, to change your focus and maybe go in a different direction. Mm. So it was just time for me to retire and do something different. I really like that. Well, so you mentioned the knee injury, but you were able to compete at a very high level for a very long time. What helped keep you, you know, healthy and active all of those years, like the longevity of your athletic career? What, what things do you look back on and say like, wow, I'm really glad I did this or that. I studied nutrition in college. I got my degree in dietetics. And and I think even though I never used that professionally in like as a dietitian, it was really useful for me because I, I knew a lot about nutrition and then obviously, you know, a lot about yourself and what works well for you. So I think just having that knowledge for my own personal nutrition really helped me. Just different things work well for different people as far as nutrition goes. Um, that was one of the things that I think gave me longevity. And then just having balance in your life, like not getting too serious. Um, giving yourself breaks, you know, not being so focused that you can't enjoy what you're doing because Mm. that leads to burnout. Mm. And, you know, you, you have to just maintain that passion. If you have to step away for a little bit, do something else so that you can maintain that passion for your sport. Interesting. It's so, it's so interesting to see how people ride that line because you need to train at the highest level to get the highest level of performance. And, but that just comes at such a high cost. You also need to recover in a way that allows you to train the right way. And so this, it's this weird dichotomy of you want to be pushing yourself all the time. Yet, if you are pushing yourself all the time, you never get a chance to recover and enjoy those adaptations. And so th- that becomes a real struggle. And you can see a lot of people that get burned out, overtrained, injured, all kinds of stuff like that, because they're not paying attention to the recovery portion. They're only focused on the training and the racing all the time. That's true. And as you age as an athlete, your focus needs to be more on recovery and less on training. So it really, this, the scale kind of tilts in the other direction, really quality training and quality recovery. Mm, I like that. Okay. This is going to be a two-part question. I'm going to ask you personally first, what things did you notice nutritionally that really worked? Like, what did you learn about yourself? And then I'd also like to ask you, 
what would you tell somebody on the street if they had questions for you that would be maybe like a little bit more basic of things that they could do that would help them? Nutritionally, I think eating clean, just, you know, non, I mean, you hear this all the time, stay away from processed foods, you know, eat more vegetables. For me, I I stayed away from sugar. I thought that really helped me because if you're not eating sugar, and I mean like high glycemic foods like bread, uh, potatoes, although sweet potatoes are low glycemic, it seems counterintuitive. But uh, those high glycemic foods, staying away from those, and then you tend to eat more vegetables. And I've never been a vegetarian. I I definitely am a meat eater. Mm. So, um, but choosing, you know, clean, lean meats for sure. Lots of salmon and chicken and some lean beef, Mm. pork, but really just eating clean, you know, just staying away from the, the fast food and trying to prepare your own meals because it is tough when you're traveling a lot. If you're traveling with your career, whether you're an athlete or, you know, other, another type of career, it's really hard to eat clean when you're eating out all the time. So for me, it was preparing my own food and just really trying to eat clean. Mm, I love that. We are fully on board with that for sure. And it sounds like the advice is, you know, fairly simple and could apply to you as a professional athlete, but could also to, to, to help somebody on the street. So I think that's really great processed foods, try to reduce or eliminate the sugar, definitely something to get out of the diet. Um, yeah. last question about your career. If you could go back to Shawnee in, in 99, who's just starting out racing, what piece of advice would you tell her now? That's a, that's a tough one. I would say, keep things fun, interesting. (laughs) If you're not having fun, I mean, I'm not saying that you wake up every day and you're jumping up and down to go ride for five hours because you're doing base miles that day. Um, but (laughs) you know, some days are work and, and you kind of have to accept that. Like you're not going to have fun every day when you're working, but to keep keep a balance to where you are actually enjoying what you're doing. Mm. It's just going to, you know, it's just going to pay dividends. If you keep things in check, don't get too serious. I mean, you, you have to laugh, you have to just have a balanced lifestyle. It, it just can't be solely focused. You have to incorporate relationships. It's, it's not just about you and your bike. I mean, it's about you and your training group and, uh, just you and your family. I mean, you really have to incorporate everything into your, your lifestyle really to enjoy it. You Mm. just can't be selfish. Mm. I love that. I think that's really great advice. Let's take a little break before we ask you a few more questions and let you go. So there is a picture that exists of you that you are in a truck that looks like the size of a house and it was going down like an extremely steep grade on unfinished terrain down a mountain. And I asked you about it, like, what is this? And you're like, oh yeah, it's just my fire cutting truck and it cuts lines and holds 1,250 gallons of water that sprays hundreds of feet through a cannon. I was like, what? That's insane. Yeah, it's just, little, it's just a little something I picked up in the last couple of years. Just, just a little something I picked up over the years. Doesn't sound yeah. like it. Um, I, I recently just got a, a new car, and I didn't see one of those available at the dealership. Where do you, where do you no, just casually I pick? I didn't see it. Maybe it was on the showroom. <laughs> yeah, you know, I've, like I, we were talking about, I retired. I think it's been six years ago now, and I was kind of getting bored. You know, I mean, I, I. I invested in real estate, so I I have my rental properties and I manage some of those and that keeps me somewhat busy. Um, And then I picked up pickleball and that's a whole other subject we can talk about. (laughs) I I keep coming back to that because I love it. I love pickleball. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, you know, I was kind of getting bored. I felt like I wasn't really contributing to society, you know, I mean, as silly as that sounds, I mean, I, I 
needed some more of a purpose. And a friend of mine owns a wildland firefighting company and they have three pieces of heavy equipment. One is a masticator that chews up anything in its path. Um, one is the, the soft track dozer, which is the one you were referring to that has 1,250 gallons of water. And that cuts fire line as well as fights fire. It's got a deck gun on it that can shoot way up in the trees. Um, so you're in the direct line of fire attack with that machine. And then they have a big off-road water tender that holds 2,600 gallons of water. And that's like a Stuart and Stevenson army vehicle that has been built into this huge water tender. So it's a six-wheel drive. It's like a huge mountain bike. I mean, it's six-wheel drive goes anywhere in the mountains. So they're like, Shawnee, you think you can get to the top of that mountain? We've got some guys up there that need some water. <laughs> like, you bet. That thing is so fun. Wow. So I've I've started um, training with my friend and learning to operate all these things. I got my CDL class A so I can drive the semi truck, pull in the equipment. And so now I'm into this whole other part of my life, which I never thought I would be doing. So I'm doing wildland firefighting in the summer. I love it. Wow. Have you ever been in some like really sticky situations? Yes. Ugh. Many times. <laughs> I've been doing it for two years and and I, I was not sharing this information with my parents. I, I just, <laughs> I didn't think that it was, I was going to be like in this direct fire attack, Wow! but that's what I do now. And it's so funny. It's all perspective. It's kind of like mountain biking. You see this descent as a beginner and you're like, I will never do that, you know? And then as you get better and better at your skills in mountain biking, pretty soon you're going down this descent and you're, you don't think anything of it. So that's kind of what this firefighting has been like, you know, my first fire, I thought, well, I'm never going to get that close to the fire. And now I'm right in the middle of it. Wow. It's awesome. Wow. That's crazy. Well, on behalf of all of us, thank you very much for your work there. That's not something you will ever catch me doing. So we're really <laughs> grateful that you are. You have spent some time in Nepal over the years and you went back a few years ago for a project that was captured in a documentary, uh, mock show, which was really good. I watched it yesterday. It was great. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that experience and how that came about? Yeah, you bet. Uh, moksha means uh, freedom in the Nepali language. And I was asked to be a part of this documentary in Nepal. The ladies there are just learning about mountain biking and get into mountain biking as a sport. And it really coincides with what they're going through right now in their society. The women are becoming more liberated there. And it, you just, you take advantage of, I mean, you, you don't realize some of the, the suffering that people are going through in these other countries. And then as women in Nepal, they, they still have arranged marriages, which, you know, it may work for some people and that's wow. okay. But the women that don't want to participate in that, they're being persecuted for that. Mm. And we were just there using mountain biking basically as a platform to build their confidence and their independence. Again, being able to go out on your own and on a bicycle to the store and, you know, do the things that we take for granted. Wow. Um, and that's basically what the movie's about and what an amazing transformation I saw just in the short amount of time I was there. The documentary is predominantly about these three young ladies who we helped, um, trained to become bike tour guides. And I had the opportunity to go back to Nepal and I brought uh, 12 of my friends and we hired the company uh, to take us around the Annapurna circuit on mountain bikes. And two of the three gals were our mountain bike guides. So it was so cool. Full that. circle. Yeah. It was awesome. Wow. That's awesome. It, the, the film is is gorgeous. It's beautifully shot. They captured a lot of those moments. You see the smiles on their faces. I remember seeing kind of towards the end where it looks like somebody that maybe hasn't been on a bike in a very long time. She looks a little older. She's on a bike and, and it's this kind of slow-mo of her riding in this little clinic area you guys set up and her face, like the smile on her face is just <laughs> like, you can't replicate that. It's so good. Um, you also did a really nice job. I could tell like with them integrating into their society. It wasn't just about bikes. It was, you know, mm -hmm. the religion, it was their food. It was the way they lived. It was where they slept. And, and I mean, if you had told me that you had been there 
you know, 18 years and you were adopted by them, I'd be like, yeah, that's kind of what it looks like. It looks like they're all family. So how, how was that experience? Oh, they're amazing people. They're, they're so welcoming. And, you know, I just think traveling is so good for, for all of us to see that we are all the same. It doesn't matter if you have different religious beliefs or, you know, it, it doesn't matter. We're all really to the core the same. And, and it's all about loving one another and respecting each other. And, and that's the way they live. I really felt they, they just welcomed us with, with open arms. They're amazing people. I still am in, in touch with those girls and it's, it's just been a, a wonderful friendship. That's fantastic. Oh, that makes me so happy. It's, it's hard to remember sometimes like when your Wi-Fi goes out or, you know, the, the house isn't heated the way you want it to. And you wig out, it's hard to remember, you know, the times that I lived in, you know, areas where people were living in cardboard boxes or something and <laughs> remember like, okay, my Wi-Fi is not all that important right now. It's okay. <laughs> you see that quite a bit in Brazil. You said you spent some time there. Yeah, absolutely. And that, like Sao Paulo, for example, it's just like people living on top of people in, in like cardboard boxes. It's amazing, but yet they're still so generous and have so much fun kicking around, you know, grocery bags taped together like a soccer ball in the street or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Mm. A lot of poverty. Yep. Totally. Really thankful. Yep. I agree. I agree. Mm-hmm. Um, you have described yourself in the past as a coffee snob <laughs> and you ended up buying a coffee farm in Hawaii. Is that still something you do? Is that something you practice? I couldn't pull up the website when I looked. I still practice being a coffee snob. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes <sir. laughs> um, no, you know, I sold my, my little farm. It's just a small farm on the big Island. And I learned so much about coffee. It was, it was great. I, um, I had that for about mm, seven years maybe, but I sold it along with the brand. It was a Wahine farms was the name of my brand. Wahine means female in Hawaiian language. Mm. And, uh, I had a lot of fun with that. Just did online sales. And, um, I, at the time I was racing full time. So I didn't, I wasn't involved a whole lot with the processing. So I had someone who, you know, did all the pruning of my trees and the, the, um, these guys would come and, and pick the beans. And then, you know, there's a whole process. There's the, the drying, the, you know, depulping, and then the, the getting the shells off and you got the green bean, then you have to roast it. And it's, it's a, quite a process to what goes into the cup. Wow. Um, but yeah, that was a lot of fun, but I did sell that a few years back. So I'm gotcha. no longer a coffee farm owner. Gotcha. I came across a book earlier this year called Thanks a Thousand, where the author decided that he was going to find a thousand people all over the world that were involved in the cup of coffee that he would drink every single morning. And so it was down to the barista and then traveled to where the beans are grown and everything in between who made the, the cups and who designed the lids and the labeling and all this stuff. And there's so much that goes into that process that we don't even really think about. We just are, you know, kind of rubbing the, the sleep out of our eyes and don't really consider where that is coming from. But I think that's cool that you got involved with that process. Yeah, I love it. I make my cappuccinos every morning. I have my little Anita Italian uh, espresso machine at home. Nice. I was going to ask what your, what your poison was, what your favorite, uh, caffeinated drink was. Yeah, definitely double cappuccino for me today. <laughs> at least one of them. I love it. Uh, are you still on your bike? Still riding. In fact, I just got a Cannondale with a lefty. Oh, nice. What do you think about that? It's a little visually, um, hard to wrap your mind around. Yeah, it is. You know, I rode Cannondale for three years, I raced for that Sobe Cannondale team and they just came out with the lefty. I think it was my last year on the team. Wow. And, uh, and I loved it. It's a great shock. It's amazing. It's, it's so stiff, which doesn't you know, you look at it and it's one sided. You think it'd be kind of noodly, but it's actually quite stiff laterally. It's very stable, but you know, you look down at it at first and it seems a little strange, but once you're riding, you're, you're not supposed to be looking down anyway. So if you're riding properly, you shouldn't notice. Huh. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> it's a great bike. It's a habit. So it's got 130 in the front, 120 in the back. Perfect. Travel. And it's a, it's a good in-between bike for me because I still live in Durango. So it climbs really well and descends well. Nice. I like it. 
That's great. Okay. Gun to your head. You've got one more ride that you can do. Where do you go? What's your favorite trail? Favorite trail. That's tough. That's a tough one. Um, you've ridden a bunch, so I'm sure that's really tough. And I'm sure I could say one thing and then 30 minutes later, I've changed my answer. (laughs) Um, you know, man, that's really hard. (laughs) I'm going to come back to that. Okay. No worries. (laughs) (laughs) No worries. Um, you have been somebody who has maintained a, a great level of health throughout your life. You mentioned nutrition already. You mentioned recovery practices. Obviously, the exercise is a big part of that. What what other healthy habits do you practice that help keep you, you know, mentally and physically engaged? I still love to get eight to nine hours of sleep. I think I think that's important. Getting yeah. rest. Agreed. And we get so busy. It, even semi-retired now, firefighting. You get busy with life, just your social life or, or whatever it may be um, that we start to overlook sleep. And we're like, oh, we'll be fine with seven hours. And then pretty soon it's only six hours. And, and that really does wear on you. Um, so I, I, I really try to focus on a good eight, at least. I prefer nine, but <laughs> if I can get eight, I'm happy. Yeah, that's eight great. Eight hours of sleep, you know, balanced diet. I mean, I'm not crazy about it. I, I definitely enjoy sweets now and then. Actually, I'm more of a chip person. I love chips, <laughs> savory. but definitely sleep, you know, eating pretty healthy. I exercise, but not too, not too much. I think that's, that's possible too. You get so crazy about it. You're, you've got all these injuries and you're constantly dehydrated. I mean, exercise should be a healthy activity not something that turns into an obsession. I tell people that if you took ping pong and tennis and you smash them together, you would get the sport of pickleball, which is super fun. It's a great sport. Tell me how you found it and what level of competition, if any, that you're doing that at. I found pickleball with my sister and brother-in-law. They, they played somewhere. So they, they told me about it. And so we all went to the rec center in Durango, Durango, And, you know, when you first walk in, you see mostly older people. And I think a lot of people look at that and they go, oh, well, that's an old person sport. But I guarantee you, those old people can kick your butt. I mean, they're so skilled and they don't have to move. I mean, the better you are, the less you have to move, right, on the court. And, I mean, my skills are catching up with my fitness, but when I first started playing, I was the one running all over the court, diving for balls because I didn't have any skill, you know, and these older people are just laughing at me, but I say, use what you have. And that's what I had. So that's what I used, but now I have a little more skill and, uh, I love it. I play in tournaments. I played in the world, um, pickleball championship. It was in Germany last year. It's wow. called the Bank. So all countries, uh, there were so many countries that were represented there and we just had the best time. It was, it's amazing. And it's supposedly it's the fastest growing sport in the U S is that right? Have you read this? I haven't read it, but that wouldn't surprise me. They are building a ton of parks out where I live and, and hardly any of them have tennis courts anymore, but almost all of them have pickleball courts. So that would, that would not surprise me one bit. Yeah, it's such a great sport for people that played tennis. And then as we get older, you don't want to run as much, you know, like it bothers your hips or knees or whatever it is. But right. there's so many tennis players now that are getting into pickleball. It's it's not easy. I mean, it's super fast paced. In fact, I told one of my friends, she we were riding, one of my best riding buddy up in Durango, and we were doing these, you know, long downhills on the mountain technical stuff. And she goes, man, Shawnee, you're really riding well. Like your downhilling seems faster. What's going on? And I go, I really think it's the pickleball. And she laughed. And I go, no, I'm serious. It's such a fast, like hand-eye coordination reaction sport that it transfers to my mountain bike skills. It's <laughs> the craziest thing. Wow. Yeah. If you think about it that way, that that's not surprising at all. <laughs> it really is a fun sport. And you're right. It's just like a little bit less impact than tennis, but you certainly need a level of fitness to play pickleball. Like it, you will be out of breath <laughs> and, and in a really fun way. It's a, it's a really fun sport. Well, mm-hmm. before we turn you loose, we have to ask you our final questions. These are the three questions that my wife and I ask each other at the end of every week. So we are going to ask you what we call the three questions. 
The first one is what is one thing you learned or changed your mind about this week? Well, <laughs> I, did, I did change my mind about my favorite ride, which refers us back to the previous question. <laughs> um, the Blue Tears mountain bike trail in Tasmania, Australia, I would say would be my final ride if I had to choose one. There we go. And if you haven't heard about it, you have to look it up on YouTube, Blue Tears. It's we, become this huge mountain bike destination. We will definitely link to that in the show notes. That sounds awesome. Uh, great answer. Second question, what is one thing you'd wished you had done better this week? I wish that my pickleball serves would have been better this week. <laughs> <laughs> That's I'm a- working on a spin serve and I just don't have it down yet. And there were a lot of, there was a lot of failure this week, but I'm going to push through and hope that next week is better. Nice. One of my friends that we would always play with had this funky serve. It wasn't the prettiest, but he could get the ball to top spin hard and I could never return his serves. It was so infuriating. He would kick my butt all the time. He knows exactly who he is. I hope he listens. Um, yeah, that's there. There's a lot you can do in those serves. That's for sure. Uh, last of the three questions. What is one thing you are very proud of this week? Very proud of. Um, I, I'm proud that I have been very patient uh, this week driving in the city. I'm not used to that. I'm visiting Texas. I'm visiting my family in Texas. So I'm not used to this city driving. And people are not very nice. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm proud that I've been patient this week. You go ahead. No, nope, you go first. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> we could all use a little bit more of that these days. <laughs> I'm very patient. That's great. Well, we are two days away. I can't even believe it. We're two days away from wrapping up 2020, which has been obviously a very tumultuous year. A lot has gone down this year. People are impatient and tired and confused and, you know, learning what to do. But you seem to have this level of positivity that just kind of like radiates. What What is your secret to your positivity. Well, thank you for that. Um, you know, I tell people I have the happy gene. <laughs> I, I think, I think it's a choice how you view things, your perspective on things. Um, I try to, I try to find the positives. I mean, it's, it takes less energy to find the positive in something than the negative. So I try to remember that, you know, my parents were very positive people when I was growing up. So I think they really set a good example. Um, and I just, you know, I think life is full of adventures and I'm always looking for that next adventure or that next, that, you know, person that you're going to meet that you, that just dropped into your life. And now you have this wonderful new friend or, uh, new sports, new hobbies, traveling to new places. I just have a real adventurous spirit. And I think that keeps me hungry and passionate That's great about life and just not being afraid to try something different, you know, talk to people that you don't know. You just, you just never know what's out there. There's just all this goodness waiting for you mm. if you're just open to it. That's great. We've talked about positivity. We've talked about gratitude. We've talked about travel. We've talked about nutrition, your incredibly successful career. What is one simple thing that you'd want a listener to take away from this conversation and plug into their life? I would say just more of the same. Just be open. Be open to, to trying something different. Say yes to things. You know, like you, you learn, you feel excitement and experience passion like you did when you were a child you know just just don't lose that adventurous spirit well, that's great i think that's really great advice <clears throat> thank you so much for coming on to the show you're somebody that i followed for a very long time and you showed the example that you want people to have which is positivity and excitement and gratitude and we're really grateful for that. We're grateful for your work in Nepal and, and for bringing smiles to so many other people's faces. Where can somebody go if they want to get a hold of you? 
You can find me probably mountain biking and camping in my van in the Utah desert. Perfect. That is a great answer. (laughs) That's a great answer. (laughs) Well, thank you again, Shawnee Van Lanningham, for coming onto the show today and sharing your wisdom and advice with us. We really appreciate you and everything that you've accomplished. Thank you, Casey. It's great talking to you again. Oh, we agree. And it has been another episode of Boundless Body Radio. 